In fact, he thought that the reformers were proof that the Antichrist was at hand, that these were the last days and Jesus had to be returning. Indeed, when he gave his address on the occasion of being granted his degree at Cambridge, it was simply a diatribe against Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was one of Luther's protégés, close confidants, great friends, and a great theologian in his own right. He urged fellow Cambridge students not to attend the lectures of the few believing men then teaching in the university. His zeal for the corrupt and spiritually dead church of medieval Europe was such that he was honored for it in the university. But Latimer's, one of Latimer's fellow students at Cambridge was a man by the name of Thomas Bilney. Bilney, too, would eventually be put, for, put to death for his faith. He would be one of the earliest martyrs of the English church. But Bilney didn't have, a, didn't have Paul's dramatic conversion story. He'd become a believer. He'd embraced the evangelical gospel simply by reading some of Luther's works that were making their way to England and by reading the Bible. He'd become a believer. He'd embraced the evangelical gospel simply by hearing it and realizing it was true. He saw in Latimer a zealous man, but one who simply didn't know what he was talking about. How to reach Latimer. How to get him to sit down and listen to him about the gospel. After Latimer's public blast against the Melanchthon and the Reformation, Bilney came upon an idea. He went to Latimer and asked if he might make confession to him. Both men were young priests. Latimer, of course, was overjoyed, perfectly willing, because he knew that Bilney was one of those heretics and assumed that he wanted to confess the error of his ways and return to the fold. But what Bilney told him was the anguish in his soul that his own efforts had been powerless to remove, the inability of the church to help him, and the peace that he found when he believed on Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He described to Latimer the sense of sonship he had received and the privilege he now found in calling God his Father. Latimer, who expected to hear a confession, listened to all of this without suspicion, much as the crowd had quieted when Paul had addressed them in Aramaic, which we'll read about here in a minute. But as Bilney continued, new thoughts began to form in Latimer's mind, thoughts he had never had before. He would later say, I learned more by that confession than in many years before. From that time forward, he began to smell the word of God. Like Paul, he had become a believer for real and immediately realized what a great wrong he had done against the Lord and his word. But Bilney consoled him. Though your sins be as scarlet, Brother Latimer, they shall be white as snow. Two college graduates, the one bearing witness, the other one being convinced. I wonder how many times that has happened. Whatever your story, whether you have a remarkable conversion story or it's much more mundane, you have a story to tell. You know what Christ has done for you. And so as we come to our text this morning, let me give you a little bit of a review as to where we have been. We have seen last week Paul has arrived in Jerusalem and he met with the church leaders. God has been doing mighty deeds amongst Jews and Gentiles. Many of the Jews had, be, had been converted and they were zealous for the law. And there was a rumor that Paul had been instructing Jewish converts to abandon Moses. This was entirely untrue. And so they developed a plan with the goal of quenching that rumor. 
Um, the plan didn't have much success and then eventually it led to a riot and Paul was arrested. That's where we've been the past couple of weeks. Just a quick preview of where I hope to go today. Today we're going to see Paul stand before his countrymen and he is going to declare the gospel. And I think everybody who is listening, who is here in this room, who is hearing this via live stream or who might download this, Every Christian has a conversion story. We have a need to hear what's told today because all of you have a conversion story and we need to tell that story. We need to tell it in a way that reveals and adorns Christ. Let's take a lesson from the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read our text today. It's rather lengthy, so just uh, follow along with me. Um, But it's God's Word and we're in church, so we're going to read God's Word. Acts 21, verse 7 21, verse 37 through 22, verse 29. As Paul was about to be brought to the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he, had been given, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make before you now. And when, he had heard that he, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew. Born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to death, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were gathered, who were there to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice to me saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting now. Those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, and because the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me. And I came to Damascus, and one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon his name. 
When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. They ra- then they raised their voices and say, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out, For the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What you are about to do, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let me give you a little bit of background and just the setting as to what's going on with this passage of text, because there's, there's quite a bit going on. We should realize that no one understood better than Paul um, the Jewish resistance to his ministry. First of all, there was just general unbelief that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of sinners, and he encountered that on a regular basis. But then there was another um, resistance, and this was offense taken by Jews who could not believe that a person could be a member, could become a member of God's family without becoming a Jew first. And so Paul is encountering all of these various difficulties. And you need to recall that Paul has, uh, Paul's methods and Paul's uh, ministry has been maligned. They have uh, uh, shared false rumors about who Paul is. And let's not forget, one of the things we shared last week was the very, very intense um, Jewish nationalism that's going on at this time. So foreigners were treated with, uh, with great suspicion And so now you have Paul coming into Jerusalem and he's bringing with him Gentile believers and they're coming in at during the the celebration of Pentecost. And Paul has been it's been rumored that Paul has abandoned Moses and now he arrives in Jerusalem with a bunch of Gentile converts and this anti-Jewish sentiment. I'm sorry, this anti-Gentile sentiment has been been uh, uh, being stoked and being treated with suspicion. And so this is where Paul is at. And so when Paul then, um, a riot breaks out, Paul is in the temple, and they think that he has brought a Gentile, an unclean person into the temple. And so a riot breaks out, and this uh, Roman tribune whose job is to keep the peace comes and drags Paul away from this rioting crowd. And as he's taking him back to the barracks, um, Paul speaks to him, and uh, the Roman tribune is uh, is surprised that he knows Greek. Um, 
And the reason is, is because this Roman tribune has misidentified who Paul is. Paul speaks Greek and he goes, but aren't you the Egyptian? Aren't you the Egyptian man who came in a while back and disrupted everything and caused a riot and a whole bunch of people were, uh, uh, were killed? Aren't you that guy? Now, you need to remember, we actually have a record of this event. Josephus gives this to us. Um, and so he's misidentified as a, a, an Egyptian revolutionary, a guy who'd come, he was a, uh, um, a guy, he'd, uh, an Egyptian Jew, he'd come in from Egypt, and he was declaring that God was going to deliver Jerusalem from the ro- hand of the Roman occupiers in much the same way that Joshua defeated Jericho. And so he led many Jews to the Mount of Olives to wait for this uh, great deliverance, this uh, tearing down of the walls of Jerusalem. Um, Well, the Romans weren't real happy about that. So Felix, the governor at the time, commanded Roman soldiers to put down this rebellion. They did. They did so brutally, killing many. Um, And um, the Egyptian leader fled, and was never seen from again. Our Roman tribune says, aren't you that guy? I just assumed you were that guy and that you'd come back. How is it that you speak Greek? And Paul says, no, no, I'm a Jew. I'm from Cilicia. Let me speak to the crowd. I think um, some people have put forth that this would have never happened, but I think the, the, the Roman tribune is thinking, listen, if you've got a possibility of calming this riot, then I'm all for it. If this is going to help us calm the crowd, then go for it. And so Paul speaks up and he begins to speak. More likely it's Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew. Um, Very few people spoke Hebrew in these days. Paul did. Um, but very few people did. Uh, Aramaic was certainly the, the, the common language of the Jews at this day. And he begins to speak in Aramaic. One of the things that I find interesting about what Paul is doing here is when we think about what's gone on, Paul has faced incredible injustice. He has been unjustly beaten. He has been unjustly arrested. He has been unjustly accused. And what is his response? His response is, how do I show them Christ? Wow. How do I show them Christ? He realizes God has provided an audience for him. And now he has opportunity to demonstrate how God changes life. He is going to show the crowd that the heart of the problem is the heart. And he's going to show that I had a wicked, violent, vengeful heart and God changed me. And he will do the same for you. So Paul now begins to begins this address. And so it says that when there was a, a great hush when he addressed them in the Hebrew language, and they said that when they heard him speak in the Hebrew language in their native tongue, he became, they became even more quiet. I think the uh, Roman tribute is probably pretty happy right now. He's probably going right on. This is working out pretty good. More likely than not, the Roman tribune does not understand Aramaic. All he knows is that the crowd is being quiet and it looks like things are going in the right direction. 
And so Paul gives forth his defense. This is the word apologia, which you might know as apologetics or as an apologetic. So when we talk about apologetics, we're just talking about a defense. When somebody says, I'm an apologist, we're not saying that I make an apology or I'm saying I'm sorry. We're making a defense. And so Paul now makes his defense. And like most of the other defenses that we see in the book of Acts, his defense is not to defend his actions in Jerusalem. His goal is not necessarily to gain his acquittal. It is a defense of the Christian faith. What he's going to declare and defend is that Jesus is Lord of all and that he is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. He's not going to make a plea, let me go, I'm innocent. He's going to say that Christ is Lord of all. We see this in Peter, we see this in James, we see this throughout the the great defenses in the book of Acts. When people stood up to make a a defense of their guilt or innocence, it wasn't about how do I get out of this mess, but how do I declare Christ? And the means that Paul is going to use is he's going to use his personal testimony. Paul is going to share his testimony as the means by which the gospel is presented. And I think our testimonies can be an effective means of sharing the gospel. I have sometimes been critical of personal testimonies. Because I think a lot of times when we share our personal testimony, what we do is we just talk about how bad we are. And then at the end, and we say, but God was good and saved me. And we end it there. And it really becomes more about us. Personal testimonies that include the gospel are an effective way of sharing the gospel. And this is what Paul does. He's going to talk about how Christ, how he encountered the risen Christ and he became a completely different person and he became part of the family of God. So the first thing Paul does, he says, brothers and fathers, brothers and fathers, hear the defense, hear the apologia that I make before you now. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, so I'm a Hellenistic Jew. And there's probably many Hellenistic Jews in the audience that day. I am a Hellenistic Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, probably one of the greatest rabbis who's ever lived. He may have been considered the goat, right? Greatest of all time. He's definitely one of the top five. And so Paul is saying, man, I, 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 I was born a Hellenistic Jew, but I was trained under the most Hebrew of Hebrew Jews. And he's got the whole audience. Probably one of the greatest Jewish scholars of all time. I was a Pharisee. And like you, I'm zealous for the law. I'm just like you in, in those regards. Zealous for the law. In fact, I was so zealous for the law that I made it my goal in life to destroy the Christians. And you are witnesses to that. I love this, how he he points out and he says, even the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. They're probably sitting in the crowd. The people who gave him letters, he's saying, man, you guys know. (laughs) This is probably 30 years after Paul, um, after the Damascus Road experience somewhere in there. Paul's going, man, you guys know me. You know who I am. You know my professor. You know who raised me. 
You guys, some of you out there even gave me letters to persecute the church that I hated. Zeal led me, zeal for God's law led me to Damascus. Here's kind of what we might be saying. Um, If anybody could be confident in the flesh, if anybody could be confident in having merit with God, it was me. Paul goes through this in his book to Philippians. He said, listen, if anybody's a good Jew, I am it. Paul is pretty much saying the same thing. If If anybody has anything to boast before God, I'm the guy. If anybody can gain heaven on their own merit, I'm it. But what he's going to go on and tell him is nobody, not even somebody with my credentials, can earn favor with God. I had actually sinned against a holy God, and I needed to be forgiven by that holy God. If there was only a way, if there was only an offering, if there was only a sacrifice sufficient to my sin, if only... Don't forget, Paul doesn't even know he's a sinner at this point. He thinks he's doing the right thing, going to Damascus. He has no clue that he is opposing God. We create and establish all sorts of theologies and all sorts of theological systems to make ourselves right before God. Man constructs religious systems that justify themselves apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One such system is uh, very common, especially in third world countries, perhaps even amongst uh, poor areas of America and we often know it as liberation theology and liberation theology simply says you are saved because you are oppressed. God saves oppressors. You're oppressed. You're saved. This is a theological construct that takes God's love for the poor and the oppressed and says simply because of that God has mercy upon you. Construct all sorts of different ways to, to justify our sin apart from the merits of Christ. Paul had done the same thing. Listen, I'm a great Jew. I was, I'm, I was born a Jew of Jewish parents, circumcised on the eighth day, trained under Gamaliel. I'm a persecutor of everything that opposes God. That's me. And it still could not cleanse me of my sin. So then... He encounters the God who has the sufficient means to not only show him his sin, but to forgive him of his sin. So he starts talking about his conversion on the way to Damascus. First of all, one of the things we should note on Paul's Damascus Road experience is we should not overlook how God is sovereign. Paul is not seeking Christ. Paul is not looking for Christ. Paul is not considering the testimonies of Christians as a truthful claim. Paul hates Christ. Paul hates Christ and everybody who follows him and everything that's written about him. Paul hates Christ. This is the state of all believers, of all unbelievers. At the pinnacle of Paul's rebellion against God, this is when God seizes him. Oh, what great mercy. Notice when God seizes Paul. 
Not when he's looking for Christ, but when he's actively opposed to Christ. It is when at the pinnacle of Paul's rebellion against God that God seizes him. And not for justice, but for mercy. That's an amazing thing. Paul now is now knocked down, confronted by the risen Lord, and he deserved justice. And God appears to him, Christ appears to him, and every right to exact justice, and instead shows him mercy. God strikes him down, but not to kill him, but to save him. One of the great truths of Paul's conversion. We see this blinding light. Paul describes this blinding light. Uh, for, for us, we should know this is no vision and this is no dream. This is the physical appearance of the risen Christ. And Christ says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? We talked about this the um, when we were in, in Acts chapter 9 talking about Paul's conversion. But you'll notice that if you persecute the church of God, you are persecuting Christ. To come against the church is to come against Christ himself. To do it to the least of these is to do it to me. Paul's, not, Paul's thinking, I'm just persecuting a bunch of people. I'm not actually persecuting Jesus. And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. I take this personally. Why are you persecuting me? Christ holds his church in very high regard. To come against his bride is to come against Christ. We need to be cautious in our complaints against the church. What you've done to the least of these, you do to me. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul is blinded. Paul is blinded by the light that he, of, of the risen Christ. And I think there is a, a, um, a parallel. There's certainly an Old Testament parallel here from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 28 and 29. This is uh, a, a passage of text that is dealing with God's reaction or God's judgment upon the disobedient. And he says this, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. You shall grope at noonday and and the, as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in all your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. Paul is at noonday and he is groping around like a blind man. an affirmation of his rebellion. Paul is blind. Right now, Paul sees more clearly than he ever has in his entire life. Paul can't see an inch in front of him. He can't see that. His hand in front of his eyes, but he sees Christ more clearly. He sees things more clearly than he ever has. And while... While Paul is blind, he sees Christ clearly. Others have their sight, but they cannot see Jesus, and they actually are blind. His eyes are opened, and they see Christ, and he sees Christ. So Paul is humbled. He's knocked to the ground. He's powerless. 
He's led by others. He's dependent. He is not the mighty leader that he once thought he was. He is a creature to whom the Lord of glory shows mercy. And he encounters Ananias in probably two of the greatest words in the Bible. Brother Saul. What an amazing two words. Brother Saul. Remember, Ananias was a little concerned about this guy. When we read back in Acts, when, when this actually happened, Ananias is like, oh, Lord, don't you know who this guy is? <laughs> He's coming to town to, to arrest people and to take them to be punished. And you want me to go to him? And he does. Brother Saul. Appointed, and look at this, appointed by the God of our fathers to know his will. Appointed by the God of our fathers to see the righteous one. Appointed by the God of our fathers to hear his voice. Wow. Paul talks about this again in Galatians chapter 1 where he says, God sent me apart from my mother's womb and revealed himself to me. Paul is like going... This is just pure grace. Not only has God been merciful to me, but I saw the risen Christ. I heard him speak to me. Paul eventually left Damascus and he went back down to Jerusalem as recorded um, both in the previous chapter of Acts and also here. This one tells us that he actually went into the temple to pray. I think Paul is saying, listen, I don't hate the temple and I don't hate Moses. Even after encountering Christ, I went into the temple to pray. I think he's demonstrating his respect for the temple. He says, and when I went into the temple to pray, I had a vision. I went into a trance. And the Lord told me, get up. I'm going to send you out of here. And I love Paul's response. Um, tries to reason with God. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat people who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I was standing watch and giving approval. Certainly they won't have any problem with me because they know that I was once on their side. Certainly they'll receive my testimony. God says, get up. Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The reaction to his proclaiming that he would that that he would go to the Gentiles with the good news of Jesus Christ—that a person is saved by grace through faith alone—caused such a turmoil that the crowd said, "Away with this man! Kill him!" There's been this Gentile Jewish rift, and now Paul comes into Jerusalem. And the anti-Gentile fervor. And he says, God appeared to me and said, go and save the Gentiles. Tell them about my son who will save them on the merits of, of his sacrifice alone. The reaction was, this man does not deserve to live. And this poor tribune who probably does not speak Aramaic, thinks things, everything is going really well. 
And then all of a sudden, he has no reason why, but the riot starts back up again. He has no choice, but he brings Paul in. He says, well, if I'm not going to get a story straight, I'm going to beat this guy up. And in doing so, he will tell me why all of this is going on. Paul then tells him, uh, you don't have the right. I'm a Roman citizen. Um, And the man, of course, is surprised. Uh, Eventually, he... uh, He releases Paul from uh, the whipping pole and he is not going to be beaten. I want to give you a brief summary of Paul's defense. Paul's defense is, first of all, he, he shares what we have in common. But he gets to the point of this, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is risen from the dead. You put him to death, but God raised him from the dead, and forgiveness of sins is found in Christ Jesus. Just a couple of applications and summary. And I'll wrap this up. The Lord had prepared his disciples for this. Do you remember in Luke chapter 12? He said, Listen, you're going to be dragged in front of the synagogues and in front of rulers, and don't worry about it. On the day you are, I will give you the things to say. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said this, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. My Spirit is going to empower you to do that. And this is what Paul did. And throughout history, Christians throughout the centuries have done the same thing. And I want to encourage you. You, myself, this entire church, everybody listening, to do the same. It's easy to think, I have nothing to say. I haven't had a conversion experience like Paul. I've never been, like, seen a shining light or seen the risen Christ. I don't have a spectacular story. There are great conversion stories throughout the Christian faith. I think of Augustine. I think of John Bunyan. I mean, we think of Augustine, and he's, and he's hearing, um, rise up and read, rise up and read, and he reads, the, and he hears about Christ. And he's converted. John Bunyan, a great conversion story. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, right? A slave trader, and he encounters the risen Christ and experiences the forgiveness of Christ. C.S. Lewis, surprised by joy. Chuck Colson, one of... Uh, Nixon's hatchet men. Ravi Zacharias, who we just recently lost, was in a Delhi hospital after, seeking, uh, after attempting to kill himself. And here's the gospel. He comes to know Christ. People in this church, I hear your testimonies when you become members of this church. I hear your testimonies. They're amazing. There are great stories and some of you have them. Tell them. Tell your great stories. Make much of Christ when you tell your great story. But some of you are saying, what if I don't have a dynamic story? What if I don't have an Augustinian type of conversion story? What if I never um, tried to kill myself and heard the gospel in a Delhi hospital bed? What if that never happened to me? What if I was just a person going along and I just I grew up in a nice family and I've just kind of been a Christian a long time? What if I don't have that dynamic story? Well, you're in good company too. Origen, Chrysostom, Jonathan Edwards, William Carey. These are 
men of God who have done incredible things. Chrysostom, one of the greatest preachers of all time. William Carey, perhaps the greatest missionary who's ever lived other than Paul. They don't, they don't have a Damascus Road experience. They didn't see a shining light. Like them, though, you have met Christ and Christ has made a difference in your life. You know the truth. You know the truth about God. You know the truth about man and sin and salvation. And you know about Christ who is at the center of all. Regardless of if you have a great dynamic story or not, you have encountered Christ. You don't need a great story because you have a great Savior. Talk about it. When Paul got up, he didn't tell the crowd about himself. He told them about the risen Christ. I want to encourage us as a church to speak to myself as probably perhaps more than I speak to everyone else. Christ has saved you. You have a story to tell. You have a great Savior. Let the world know of Christ. Don't make it about you. Make it about Christ. He is the one. People may react like they did uh, to Paul's story. Or perhaps they act like Latimer did to Bill Nee. And he begins to smell the gospel. Latimer died along with a man by the name of Ridley. They were burned at the stake. On their way there, Latimer told his friend, he said, behold the fires, we're going to light a torch in England that has never been seen. The gospel is going to go forth like never before. Paul went to Rome and stood before kings and rulers and told them about Christ. Tell them about Christ. Let them smell the gospel. Let's stand and let's pray.